You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Jake Corley. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Oil & Gas This Week. You're listening to episode 147. What's up, Mark? What's up, Jake? Is President Trump directs Defense Department to immediately begin the process of establishing Space Force as a sixth military branch. How cool is that? That's pretty cool. I'm just kind of bummed that we got out. Yeah, well, I'm too old now, even if I want to get back in, but how cool would it be to be a member of Space Force? I wonder if their uniforms going to look like. <laughs> Probably just a bunch of stars. <laughs> and I wonder what basic training, I wonder what boot camps could be like for them. Are they, they going to be like zero gravity, doing zero gravity exercises or something? You know, I'm kind of curious. A lot of people are, you know, making fun of Trump for, for, for establishing the Space Force, but what if he knows something that we don't? What if there is an imminent alien invasion that's going to happen and we need to establish the Space Force. Well, and, and all joking aside, you remember the Star Wars program that Reagan, or maybe you don't, you may not even been born then. But, you know, <laughs> yeah, I don't remember that. <laughs> yeah, back when President Reagan was president, they talked about the Star Wars program. And I know there's this, this agreement that a lot of the major Western nations have made not to militarize space, but I guarantee you there's some satellites up there with some offensive capacity in case things go bad. So, I, you know, as, as much as, you know, people may laugh at this, I actually think it's something we should be looking at. You and I were talking off the mic before we got deeper into this, but it's like, I wonder if the Air Force guys are going to be looked down upon by the Space Force guys. Yeah, definitely. I can see that. Yeah, I can too. It's like, space Force will be like the new, like, what if you have Space Marines? Does that even make sense? I don't know. Maybe we're protecting space waters. So actually, Jake, you know what they would need? They would need grunts, right? So if, they're, if you're going to board another space station, you got to have some boots on the space station. I won't say boots on the ground, but it wouldn't be right. But they're, they're going to have to have some <laughs> boots in the air. <laughs> they're going to have to have some grunts, right? They're going to have to have some. I could actually see the Marine Corps stepping right in there and providing the space Marines, which is, just sounds funny. But anyway, good <laughs> stuff. You wouldn't know you're listening to the Oil and Gas This Week podcast if you just turned in. He sounds like we're listening to the sci-fi <laughs> podcast. But anyway, thanks everybody for joining us. And, and I'd like to big shout out. I know we've gotten a bunch of new listeners lately. And so, you know, our existing listeners, we love you to death. But our new listeners, thanks for joining us. And, and we hope that you find this valuable. If you don't, let Jake and I know. And if we can fix something, we will. Speaking of fixing stuff, if you want to help us support the show, leave us a review. It takes all of two minutes. We've got a couple of good ones here, Jake, from a C.M. Williams from the U.K., Recently stumbled across the podcast. Fantastic content, ideal for helping to keep us up with the current affairs within the industry. Thanks. And then we have, uh, oh, a big shout out to you, Jake. This is by us. Uh, oh, I can already try to pronounce this one. Swiska from, from the USA. <laughs> Hi, Jake. My name is Shams. I am a longtime listener of you and Mark's OGGN podcast. Your podcast provide wealth of information serving oil and gas industry. I really enjoyed your episode on Well Hub, AI and Big Data. Good luck with your new startup. So you got a big shout out from one of our listeners, which is cool. Thanks, Shams. Appreciate it. Yeah, let's jump to the news stories, Jake. What's up first? Cool. Speaking of startups, actually, they're not really a startup anymore. They've been around a while. But uh, one of the top stories we've seen in the past few days is Drilling Info uh, has been acquired by PE firm Genstar Capital. They closed the deal on June 19th, and they were acquiring a, a major position in the company from Insight Venture Partners for an undisclosed amount. So if, you, if you've paid any attention to Drilling Info over the past few years, and you know, they've been a leader in, especially in the, the what I consider more of like the public data uh, sector, they have also acquired a significant amount of companies in, of, of their own. They've made 10 acquisitions recently. Uh, they bought Global Fuse Software, Oil Law Records Corp., Datagenic, 
pattern recognition technologies. Uh, and then recently, actually the same week that they closed the deal, they bought one Derek and PLS's uh, research and database business. And so it seems like drilling info is just working towards becoming this huge, just behemoth of, you know, all sorts of data in oil and gas. Yeah. And if you pay attention of their acquisitions lately, they've gotten away from being an upstream on land a database and they're looking at all kinds of stuff, looking at the entire oil and gas market, they're looking at power markets. And I, I think, you know, that team over there, which was led by Alan Gilmer, is doing a really good job at diversifying their revenue streams. And we thought they were up for an acquisition target. So this isn't wasn't really a surprise to us. But what what is interesting is the fact that that it was GenStar that actually picked them up because GenStar is based in uh, San Francisco, if I get this right. And they, they invest a lot of money in industrial and health technology, but not so much in oil and gas technology. So this was, this was unexpected who picked them up. But, you know, this just gives drilling info more capital and more leverage to grow. So it's going to be interesting to see where this thing goes. Yeah. And if you read the article, they're apparently they're, you know, they're planning full speed ahead with even more acquisitions, drilling info, actually making more acquisitions. And so it'll be uh, kind of curious to see who they pick up, you know. I can think of a company that you can buy in a few years. <laughs> Good job, Jake. <laughs> On to the next one. Uh, Equinor lands a, or no, hands uh, $3.7 billion worth of uh, service deals to Silmerger, Halliburton, and Baker Hughes. So, you know, the Norwegian oil and gas firm, Equinor. They signed off on about 30 different contracts. No, th- no. 30 Norwegian crowns, sorry, I can't read, which is the equivalent of $3.6 billion. Some major contracts being handed out to some of the bigger companies. Uh, we've seen actually, I think like half of our articles are about stuff happening in Norway today, which is kind of weird. Yeah, so what I find just, just tongue-in-cheek funny about this, so if you have no idea who Equinor is, they just changed their name, right? This used to be Statoil. And so Statoil changed his name and said, you know, we're no longer going to be actively pursuing hydrocarbons. We look at different types of energy, hence the name change. And then two weeks after they changed the name, they announced this, where they have all the major oil and gas service companies helping them get more hydrocarbons out of the ground in the North Sea. So you could tell me all you want from your PR and press releases, the old Statoil, the new Equinor, that you're not involved in hydro, don't want to be involved in hydrocarbons anymore, but your actions speak much louder in your words. And, 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 you know, the truth is this is the right thing for them to do. I make fun of them changing their names, but if you look at what they did, they took um, a lot of these well services, directional drilling, fluids, cementing, bits, all that sort of stuff, they lumped it together in one RFP, and then they awarded it to three of the largest service companies. This is going to keep prices down because these three companies will be competing with each other inside the same RFP. And at the same time, if one of these service companies has a best practice or a new technology or a new process, Equinor gets exposed to it. So I, I loved how they handle this from a business point of view. I just think it's funny that they change their name saying they're getting rid of hydro, getting away from hydrocarbons and they you know, award a $4 billion awful service company contract. Well, speaking of, speaking of that, our next article as well is it's Norway has just awarded oil permits to 11 firms in the Arctic licensing round. And so Equinor being the leader in that, and then 10 other companies fo- focused mostly on the Arctic. So those are specifically oil and gas exploration licenses. Wait, Jake, uh, you, don't, they're gonna have you, you don't think they're pursuing wind power in the Arctic? Uh, probably not. I don't know how much wind is up there. <laughs> well, there's a lot of wind. It's just you can't get it back to civilization. Yeah. So here's once again, you know, this is the old Statoil, the new Equinor doing work with the other majors out there and uh, in the Arctic exploring. And what they're doing is they're not going into production yet. They're just doing exploration and production. But once again, if you're a major nationalized oil company, used to be known as Statoil, and you tell the public that you're getting away from hydrocarbons, why are you looking at hydrocarbons for 20 years later? Yep. Yeah. So, and and oil and gas production accounts for forty percent of Norway's exports. 
and which has been the major contributor to building the world's largest sovereign wealth fund. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Now, now, don't get me wrong, and and it, you know, I have nothing against alternative forms of energy. I've said this before on the show. You know, when humans first got started in this world, we used biofuels, we burned wood, and our energy mix has changed. You know, since then, all the time, and will continue to change in the future. I think wind and solar have its place. I think nuclear has its place. I think hydro has its place. I definitely think uh, hydrocarbons have its places too. But I just think it's funny when when you see large companies try to align themselves with what's currently popular, but still they keep doing business like they used to do business. Just, you know, at least Exxon has enough uh, nerve to tell you we're an oil and gas company. <laughs> we know they're, they're not going to, they're not going to hide from that. Anyway, all good stuff here. What's next? Cool. The next article kind of dives into some of the digital technology at Baker Hughes, uh, GE's Unify conference this past year. And so really a lot of the talk was about, you know, there's all the different technology, what we should and should be doing, the abundance of data that we have, but the lack of use, you know, I've talked about that a million times on the podcast and still the cultural change that we need to move the actual industry forward. And so it seems like you know, we see that we see this this theme, right? I've gone to a lot of conferences, uh, especially for the past few years, and I would say this year in particular, and it's this exact set of like think, talking points, right? But it just becomes talking points, and they're never actually executing on that. And so, you know, the, what's talking about a cultural change? We need an actual cultural change so that we can facilitate the other things, right? Yeah, and, and it's you may not know this, but their CEO uh, Lorenzo, we're in discussions to have him come on a couple of podcasts. Great guy, young guy, understands that technology is a future. He gets that the culture of oil and gas has to change, and then you and I get that. And I think a lot of the the younger workforce that's coming in oil and gas, they get that. It's just a matter of giving it some time in, until we have enough momentum that the culture will actually start changing. And I say that the culture is changing now. It's just not changing fast enough. For you and me, Jake, but <laughs> but but it is changing. You know, I'm I'm seeing stuff, and so are you. I mean, look at what you're doing with Wellhub. You know, 15 years ago that wouldn't have been possible. Now it's not only possible, but it's needed in the industry. So yeah, absolutely. But in this long-term hydrocarbon abundant world, we have to drive efficiencies. Technology is the best way to drive efficiencies. And we're seeing it happen, you know, literally under our feet now. I think Baker Hughes is going to be one of the leaders. I think their Predix platform is going to be a sleeper. I think a lot of large companies don't understand what the real value of what they're doing with their Predix platform. But Jake, part of their Predix platform rides on Microsoft Azure. So when you look at it that way, you can almost say that Microsoft is part of all-field service company too. So you're seeing this blending and this fading in and out of what is traditionally an all-field service company versus what is an all-field technology company. And it's and I think Baker Hughes really is, I, th I think they're leading the way. So you know, stay tuned. We'll let you know we have if, we, if and or when we get their CEO on, on one of the podcasts and we've had the head of HS and E on a couple of our podcasts already. So we have a good, great working relationship with the Baker Hughes GE. And it's just, you know, we had a chance to actually go to this concert, Jake, you, I mean, this conference, Jake, we just couldn't pull it off the Unify, yeah. but we're on the invite list for next year's press. So hopefully next year, you and I will be talking about this from Unify. Yeah. So one of the, uh, the, dem the, demos that they did of their actual technology was they had this digital, they're calling it digital twin technology, where they have a digital twin of a well in a field and artificial intelligence that was used to pinpoint, say, like a calibration issue and using that to optimize production. And so uh, I guess they went through in a matter of like five or six minutes, they went through a couple of different scenarios. Each one of those scenarios would have taken about three or four engineers a couple weeks to do that. And so you're looking at something that's like a thousand times faster than anything we've ever seen. And so it's really cool that GE is kind of leading the way um, with some of those technologies that they're, they're looking to apply to the well field. 
Yeah, you know, that digital twin thing is interesting. That's been around in other industries for a long time. Basically, it's when you create a digital model of something. So you create a model of a real well, but you create it in the cyber world. And this allows you to experiment, uh, to run tests on it, on things that you couldn't do or you wouldn't want to do in real life. And that has a lot of benefits for our industry. I've seen some really cool stuff. I've seen companies use a technology called LIDAR and go into a, a part of a refinery and it measures everything to within uh, millimeters. And then they're able to go back to the shop, recreate that part of the refinery's unit in a virtual world, and then actually build parts and pieces and see if they can fit it in there, see if the cranes will sit, see if the bolts will line up. You know, just a few years ago, that would have been a bunch of welders out in the field. They would have had to shut that unit down and it would have been trial and error. Now they can get it all done back at the office. And then when they're finished, it is perfect. And they go in, that unit has a minimum downtime. They get the parts swapped out. It gets back up. So I, I just think this is really cool. The other thing I think is really cool, and we talked about Microsoft, but you know, all of the big technology players, Google, Apple, Accenture, they're all involved in this. So when you have those big tech companies partnering with the oilfield service companies, you can see a lot of movement. And then what's what that does, it creates opportunity for a lot of small niche players like you, Jake, like Wellhub, because you see where the gaps are between the big tech players and the big service companies, and you're able to come in and come capitalize on that. So it's kind of you know good for, for the industry and good for both the big companies and for the startups all at the same time. Yep. So kind of speaking on that, the, the next article kind of dives into how do oil and gas investors pick entrepreneurs and vice versa. And so it's a it's a really in-depth article. It kind of gives some some inside uh, perspectives from some two, two PE guys from CSL Capital Management and I believe NCAP. Uh, and then also one of the one of the VCs, it's one of the partners, Sean Ebert over at uh, Altair Group. We know those guys. But it kind of gives a little insight to what they're looking for in, in the technologies that they invest in and also into uh, their management teams. And so you see this a lot with, with different PE groups and VC groups. You know, Each one of them has their own emphasis on the technologies or, or the areas that they're looking to play into. But also some of them put more of an emphasis on, say, just the entrepreneurs themselves. And they say that, you know, they... In, in worst case, worse, uh, you know, they, they can figure this out, right? And some also put a little more emphasis on on the product and on the business and, then, you know, does it have traction? And so this is a great article. I don't want to dive like too deep into it, but CSL, for example, you know, whenever they're kind of going through the process of kind of trying to figure out who they're going to invest, they ask a couple of different questions. One being, you know, does this entrepreneur have any kind of like past entrepreneurial tendencies? Have they done anything in the past or is this the very first one? And I've heard that across across the entire industry, outside of oil and gas and venture capital in general. You know, has this person launched a new project uh, at a larger company? Have they launched a new service in a different area? You know, have they been a part of a team that's gone into a certain geography? Obviously, this is kind of talking more on the EMP side. You know, have they worked for a company like Halliburton or Schlumberger or Baker Hughes? You know, do they have the uh, domain expertise? Yes or no? Are they financially shrewd? Do they really understand the economics of the business they're trying to get into? And so that was pretty cool. Uh, Sean Ebert kind of gives a little bit of a different point of view. You know, there's there's a theory out there that there are different types of CEOs for different phases of a company. So the startup phase, maybe like the mid growth uh, phase, and then, you know, kind of the, the phase past the growth phase. So he even kind of goes into saying that, you know, with some of the companies that they go in to fund, they have an agreement with the CEO up front saying that most likely you're going to be replaced. And so I guess my caveat on that is kind of understand what you're getting into with different investors. There are different terms. I could never see myself signing that deal, to be honest with you. And so I understand what's on the table and what's, uh, what's not. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good. I don't want to go too in. I mean, it's pretty. It's a pretty in-depth article. But there's a link in the show notes. Go in and read that. Mark, what are your thoughts? So we actually have some audio that I don't know what I'm going to do with it. One of our networking happy hours, Jake, uh, you and Colin actually put a, a startup panel together, 
And with Jack, yeah. just hanging out with you and Colin all this time and, and listen to the panel, and I've talked to some of these uh, venture capital groups myself, one of the things that I was not aware of, or, or I wasn't aware of, but I should have been, is that when these venture capitals are looking to put money into a business, they want to make sure you have a business. So if you're just a bunch of engineers with a good idea, they, they have no interest in that, right? What they want is cash flow. Even if you're not making profit, at least you have existing cl- customers. They want a sales and marketing background as much as they want the engineering background, right? So it was, it's really interesting to watch how they do this because they're looking to pick these companies up, grow them, and then sell them and exit them. And they need to be in a certain spot. And you and I have all this, or I have all this on audio from our last uh, couple of networking happy hours ago. I just don't know what I'm going to do with that audio, but it's fascinating to me to see how they do that. The other thing I find fascinating and this is this is where I think eventually, you know, really good artificial intelligence is going to help. Is I didn't realize that what they do is they pick ten investments. They know that one or two is going to knock it out the park, and that's going to make their money for the other eight that don't. They know of the the of the eight that are left that two or three may just be okay, and the rest are going to fail. And when I look at that, it's like, man, what if you could just always pick the one or two that's going to knock it out the park? I mean, and, and all of a sudden you're making more money than any other venture capital group out there. And I think somewhere down the road, you know, there's companies out there that are already collecting this data. Somewhere down the road, artificial intelligence should be able to look, sift through all this data and figure out, you know, with a reasonable degree of accuracy, which one of these companies are going to make it. And then I think that's going to totally change the whole financial world. And then, you know, you talk about this a lot, but now we're getting to the point with, uh, cryptocurrency that companies can skip Wall Street if they want to, right? Or, yep. or with, with fractional funding. So I think this whole world is changing underneath our feet. And I think it's changing for the good of everybody. It is exciting for me to see all the startup and entrepreneurs in oil and gas. Because I got first when I first started in this industry, they were zero. And now they're all over the place and they're all doing really cool, smart, useful stuff. Yeah. Let's look at the other side of the other side of the, the field there. And you know, what should startups look for in, in investors? You know, whenever I sit down with investors, you know, I kind of it's almost like a reverse interview. You know, I come in and say, okay, you guys have cash. Everybody else that I meet with has cash, but why else should we partner with you? So do you have a proven track record? Look back and do your own due diligence on their fund. You know, have they had any successful exits? Do they have experience in oil and gas? You know, where are they at in their fund? Because you have to understand the economics of how a fund works. Usually it's about a 10 year life cycle. And so, you know, they're trying to look at an exit probably, you know, say if they're trying to get a return on their, on their money, say five years out, they're looking at an exit probably two to three years. That's when they start looking at that. And so you have to make sure that your objectives and there's kind of a line in that. So it's important to understand that. Yeah. And everybody kind of has a different, different value proposition. You know, we see, I'm starting to see more and more uh, VC firms and PE firms that kind of have like their own little, it's like half consulting or half like incubator, you know, they, uh, instead of just, you know, invest in, and sit back, you know, they kind of invest and roll up their sleeves and they want to be very involved in the process. And so if that's something that's important to you, then make sure you, you look for that. Yeah. And make sure you understand what their time horizons are. They're going to tell you, but make sure you understand that if you don't want to exit your company in three or five or seven years, and they do. Well, that's an issue. If you just want to grow your company, maybe venture capital is not the way to go. You know, maybe bootstrap it yourself, but just make sure that, like Jake said, you, what you're looking for lines up with what they're wanting to do. Because quite honestly, if, if you pick the wrong venture capital firm, number one, you're back to work in the grind. You're just working for the venture capital fund, not some other corporation. And number two, you're probably not going to stick around your own company that long. Yep. 
All right, cool. So back to some more oil news. The shale is shifting their attention to a quote unquote forgotten oil play. Colin actually sent me this, and it's because you know he's he's with with a, a new business plan that we kind of put together with with some new assets out here in this area. He was like he was like I'm super excited because you know we we kind of look like geniuses because we've been looking at the Austin chalk for like the last six months. And as come to find out over the last six months, oil majors like ConocoPhillips, Marathon Oil, and EOG have purchased like six hundred thousand acres in the chalk formation. So that runs from the Mexico Texas border. All the way through central Louisiana into, into Mississippi. And so we've seen drilling rigs in the last uh, six months twofold. We're up to like 14 rigs in the Austin Chalk. Production has rose from like 57,000 uh, BPD in 2017. And five years ago, it was just 3,000 barrels per day. So they're, they're you know, allocating a ton of money to looking back into this. It's super exciting for anybody who's looking to kind of you know, get into that region. Yeah, and it's um one of the things that's changed. This isn't this is an old play. I mean, a very old play. I actually grew up in a part of Louisiana, Jake, where my dad owned the owned property and owned the mineral rights for the chalk area, and so he sold those mineral rights or leases mineral rights a long time ago. But one of the things that's different about the chalk area is the geology changes so frequently that it's really hard to figure out where to put a productive well. Yeah. Well, with modern geoscience, now we can we can overcome that obstacle. Just a few years ago, the technology wasn't there and it was a lot of it was a best guess. Now with things like measurement while drilling and and you know big data analytics and the geosciences, companies can go in here and actually make money. And this is something you're going to see over and over and over again. You're going to see as technology progresses, you'll see operators go into areas that they had left years ago because they couldn't make money there and go in there and make money. So this is one of the many reasons when I say that hydrocarbons are around forever, <laughs> literally hydrocarbons are around forever. I mean, think of all the plays in the world that you can go back and do different types of use different technology or different well stimulation to make money you know so so this is good and this is jobs this is jobs for part of the gulf coast that you know wasn't able to tap into the shale bonanza and and now they will start being able to do that yeah exactly and, and what we're seeing is them applying some of the technology that was developed in the permian are now applying it to the austin chalk eog for example it says in this article that their wells in the austin chalk have yielded over two times more than a new well in the permian yeah, I mean, that's huge. That's a huge number. Yep, that's amazing. All right, cool. On to the next one. Cox Oil is acquiring Energy 21 in the Gulf Coast for $322 million. You know, $322 million normally would sound like a lot of money, but you and I have been talking it's about <laughs> deals in the billions. <laughs> and so now he's like, eh, $322 million. But, but this, is a, this, is, this is going to double their production in the Gulf of Mexico. I think this is a smart move. A lot of that production is on the shelf where its, it's uh, prices are low. And then uh, they picked up energy uh, right when they came out of bankruptcy, which is like the, the best time to pick up a company, right? They, they've eliminated their own debt, but now they're not worth as much as they used to be. So this is just one of the many you know, mergers and acquisitions that we think will continue. And you know, this is a good thing because a lot of people, a lot of the employees get to keep their jobs with energy. And this allows Cox Offshore to actually start compete with some of the bigger players out there. So I think you can see much more of this as we move forward. Yeah. Cool. Continental Resources CEO Harold Hamm has withdrawn from the OPEC meeting. So I'm sure most people know Hamm as you know, he's one of the one of the you know biggest oil billionaires out there. I think he's worth like eighteen billion dollars or something. But he is a third of five US shale executives to withdraw from the scheduled speaking slot at OPEC uh, meeting in Vienna. And this comes days after a trade skirmish between China and the United States has intensified, and China has imposed a $50 billion worth of tariffs on U.S. crude oil and other goods, which is really a retaliatory measure against Washington's tariffs on Chinese products. And so 
you know, Continental Resources is the largest oil producer in the, in the Bakken, and then one of the, the key suppliers of crude oil to China, shipping over a million barrels to the country since the ban was lifted in 2015. And so we've seen Sentinel Resource Development uh, CEO Mark Papa and ConocoPhillips Ryan Lance also withdraw from the OPEC events. And so there leaves there's two people that are still scheduled to attend as of now, which is uh, Pioneer Natural Resources Chief Executive Co- uh, Chairman Scott Sheffield and Hess Corp's Chief Executive uh, John Hess. You know what I love about him? He called OPEC a toothless tiger. <laughs> I won't go that far. I've been saying that that OPEC's being destabilized and they're losing their ability to control prices. But he just he just slapped him in the face and called him a toothless tiger. He's pissed, right? The official uh, explanations that didn't fit in his schedule, really, at his level, his schedule's knocked out six months ahead of time. He's just pissed off at the Chinese and he's not going. I don't blame him. Yeah. The thing that China needs to worry about, I don't want to get into some big import-export tariff debate here. But the U.S., we, we're a big importer of goods, but we also manufacture goods. We export goods. So we make money both buying stuff and selling stuff. China really only makes money by selling stuff, by manufacturing stuff. They really, literally nobody on this planet wants to get in a trade war with the U.S. I don't know if you know this, Jake, but we have $4 trillion, with a T, $4 trillion a day in transaction goes on in the U.S. There, there is no it's economy insane. in the world that can keep up with us for that, right? So, you know, I don't want to go down the political route. I like it's a lot of stuff Trump's doing. I'm a little worried about the import on tubular goods and steel, although long-term-wise, I think it may actually have a resurgence in the steel, the quality steel manufacturing here in the U.S. This whole China thing, I, I, I think it's legit. I don't think it's a game of chicken. But, you know, Ham just, just pissed off and doesn't want to go, and I don't blame him. I wouldn't go either. Yep. All right, on to the next one. You know we can't do an episode without talking about the Permian. So we have like four articles that are just dedicated to the Permian. So let's just dive into these. So super majors need to invest nearly $30 billion in the Permian Basin through 2020 to meet volume targets. And so we're, we're talking about ExxonMobil, Shell, and Chevron. Just these three alone need to invest $30 billion with a B. And so these investments will potentially catalyze you know, cost inflation and will gradually force consolidation in the Basin. That's what we think. Mark, what are your thoughts on this? So we all know what's going on there, right? There's there's hydrocarbons everywhere. We got to get it to the market. The constraint is transport, which uh, pipelines the best way to do it. Pipelines are being built as fast as humanly possible out there right now, or as fast as economically possible, I should say. This is there's a lot of money being made out there, and I don't necessarily mean the oil companies. I mean, Jake, you go out to to Midland right now, and a hotel room is four hundred fifty dollars, and this isn't the Ritz Carlton. Yeah. This is like the Holiday Inn. Getting a plane ticket to Midland right now is the same price as getting a plane ticket to Paris, France. Yeah. And so so there's a lot of money on the sidelines here. I actually had a discussion with this logistics company called Old Dominion, very old trucking company. And they're making money hand over fist up there, except they can't hire enough drivers. So they're important drivers. They're literally going through the trouble of sponsoring visas, which is a logistical paperwork, administrative and legal mess. And they're hiring drivers outside the U.S., bring them to to the Permian area to drive their trucks, and they're still making money on top of this. So a lot of money you made here. I think what's going to happen, I, I know this is going to happen because this is what we do. There's going to be a race to build transport capacity from, from the Permian to the Gulf Coast. You've got pipelines going in left to right, and what's going to happen is we're going to overbuild that capacity, and you're going to have a surplus, I think, in the future of transport. So we're going to have the opposite, which will actually be good for the refineries, and it will be good for the operators because they won't have to pay that price differential they're paying now, but it won't be good for the pipeline companies. And I think secretly, or maybe not secretly, I think the pipeline companies know that, and I think that's why everybody's going so fast. They're I think they realize the first ones to market will make really good money. 
the next ones to market will do okay. And the last pipeline's getting built. They'll have to sell transport for pennies on the dollar and, and probably will be acquired by somebody down the road. So, so that's what's going on yeah, there. Which, it's it's yeah, to be that, expected. Go ahead, Jake. I said that really just ties into the next article. So we got three, uh, obviously the, the title is uh, three Permian Basin stocks uh, poised to profit, which is Plains All-American, Target Resources, and Kinder Morgan. So kind of from the, the macro point of view, oil and gas companies are, are poised to plow through roughly $300 billion uh, into drilling in 40,000 new wells in the Permian over just the next five years. And so I think I think w- these companies can meet their volume targets, but getting it out of the Permian, like you said, is going to be just an absolute nightmare. Yeah, yeah, of course it is. And I tell you, the funny thing is that if they end up doubling the oil and gas production, which is about five and a half million barrels a day, that's more oil than Iraq produces. That's insane. So go Texas, right? Go Texas, New Mexico. Just, just Texas can outproduce Iraq. That's, that's, it is insane, but it makes me feel good, actually. But once again, there's, there's shortages of, of, of logistics, shortages of transport, shortages of everything else. And it's going to stay that way for at least the next couple of years, which once again is opportunity for other companies. And then like you just alluded to, we put another link in here for another show just about the truck driver shortage, you know, and so these, these permanent truck drivers are making, uh, you know, well over a hundred thousand dollars annually with bonuses, you know, and, and us unemployment, is like pretty much like at an all time low and it's definitely at an all time low in Midland. And so there's like, I think they're saying there's like 50,000 positions that they're needing nationwide and a significant amount of those are in the Permian. And so, but the hard time that they're having is finding people who have the CDLs, you know, you know, can pass a drug test, you know, all of those things. And so it's, it's a, if somebody can figure out that problem, I think they're going to make a significant amount of money. Well, there's something else that's going on that's not in this article and that nobody will talk about publicly. And that is there's some companies out there that are so desperate for drivers that they will lower their standards, such as the drug tests, and so they can hire drivers. Yep. That is meaning that we're having less safe people operate these trucks on less than perfect roads. And so you're starting to see the number of accidents, vehicular accidents with trucks go up. And it's been going up actually for the last year or so. It's one of the reasons I want these pipelines built is so we can get these trucks off the road, which was just, which I know it won't help the truck drivers, but it'll help everybody else. And, and there'll always be a need for truck drivers. Just, you know, I, I'd like to see them quit hauling hydrocarbon and produce water. I'd like I'll see all that moved in pipelines and let them haul the parts and pieces that, that, you know, the oil field needs. I'd also like to see them get back to where they raise the, the barriers again for the tests to make sure they have the best people behind the wheel driving those trucks on the road. And if you're out there and if you're a driver out there and you see something that's not safe, if you see another driver that's swerving or something, I know y'all are kind of in the same world together. Grab your cell phone, call the police, get him off the road. Cause you know, a truck with 10, 15,000 pounds of, of oil or produce water in the back is, is, is a huge weapon and it's just not worth somebody getting hurt. So, you know, do the right thing if you're out there. We actually, Jake, you don't know this yet, but we're actually uh, working on a show all about the Permian. That's that's just now starting to take off, and but it's going to be about the people part of the Permian. Things like with this article about the truck drivers and stuff. So, you know, but there, I'll tell you what, this much: if you have a CDL and you live in the U.S. and you're looking for work and you want to make good money, come to Texas. I mean, you're hired in a heartbeat. You're making at least a hundred grand a year, and it's good work, and it's going to be there for a long time. Yep. So our last article of the day, you know, all these shell firms, uh, a lot of them, I wouldn't say all of them, but a lot of them, you know, in the Permian are actually missing out on $70 oil because they hedged at $55 back when that looked like a good deal. And so, 
you know, I was, I, I've talked about it on the, on the air before. I talked about it with a bunch of different people, but you know, talking about Permania in general, you know, you, you're hedged at $55 oil. You're paying like a $16 a discount, $16 discount to the WTI just to export any of your crude. You're in the most competitive play probably in the world. You can't get enough talent. It's like, so where, where are your margins at? How are you making money? That's a very complex world, that hedging world. I, I don't pretend to even understand a tenth of it, but it, it is amazing. The companies that do it well come out way ahead, and the companies that don't do it well lose their shirts. Yep. Cool. All right, guys, that's all the articles for today. Mark, we're still giving away Red Wing bags, right? Absolutely. If you want to win one of these awesome Red Wing bags, and you better try to win one because they're a cult item now. It's really simple. You go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. That's redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. Put your information in. We give away one lucky winner a week. And then we're to the week weekly. Listen to me. I sound like I've been talking to Bugs Bunny all day. We're at the, we're to the weekly rig count. So what's what's the number? Speaking of a weekly rig count, it's sponsored by Drilling Info, who just got acquired. So what's what's the rig yeah. count, Jake? 1,128. So we didn't nice, go up. We didn't number. go down. We're just constant. Yep. So that's not bad. They were at the events on deck. The last Tuesday of every month, we do a happy hour here in Houston. We have one happening this Tuesday, but by the time you hear this, it'll be passed. So you need to be looking for the July. And people, I've heard you. Uh, we are working on the OGGN website. We're going to revamp it. And when we revamp it, we'll have one page where you can go to and see all the only gas happy hours in one place. The other thing is happening is that we are starting to look at taking this model outside of Houston. So if you're in Austin, San Antonio, Dallas, Lafayette, Louisiana, New Orleans, Homa, Thibodeau, you know, any of the places where there's an oil book of business and you'd like to sponsor one of these happy hours in that town, reach out to me and let me know. And we're going to start doing that pretty soon. The, the sponsoring is ridiculously cheap. I think it's $450 for the drink sponsor. I think it's $450 for the food sponsor. So you have twice the chances to sponsor. If you're looking to sponsor our Houston happy hour, which is growing like crazy, where I think we're pretty much booked for this year, but you can start sponsoring for 2019. For all of that sort of stuff, reach out to Julie. She's the one that actually runs all that stuff. And she will take care of you. And like I said, if you're anywhere in the U.S. where there's oil, Denver, Colorado, and you're interested in let's bring in our happy hour there, let us know. Once we get the U.S. filled up, we're going to start doing this internationally. But So this thing's going. Speaking of going, if you'd like Jake and I to go to your company, your trade event, your marketing, your conference, your expo, whatever, and come speak, let us know. we actually got a couple of those coming up. Uh, reach out to me and Jake. We'd be happy to share the details. And then you know the deal. First Friday Q&A. If you have a question, the goal, folks, by the way, is not to stump me and Jake. The goal is to ask a question where we can help <laughs> help spread the education to our audience. It's really simple. Go to oilandgasthisweek.com. Click on Ask a Question. Uh, if we use your question on there, you get a big shout out. While you're there, give us your email address. Uh, Julie's done a really good job, Jake, of using those email addresses to let people know about yeah. the happy hours. You and I were horrible at it, so I'm so glad she's on board. And then uh, join the LinkedIn group, OGG on LinkedIn. The LinkedIn group is actually starting to get better. Microsoft's doing a lot of work to uh, get rid of spam. And so it's still not where we want it to be, but go join the Oil and Gas Global LinkedIn group uh, as well. We cover everything, Jake. Is that it? That's about it, man. All right. Ready to get out of here? Let's do it. Uh, remember, folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week Podcast, a product of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasthisweek.com.